0: Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the Mystical Underground.
1: Welcome to the Mystical Underground. Thank you for joining us. This is Rob McGregor. And Trish McGregor. And our tech magician producer, John Posey you can go to themysticalunderground.com where we make regular uh, posts and where you can find out about our books. Our most recent nonfiction book is called The Shift, Reports from the Mystical Underground. Trisha's latest novel is White Crows, and Rob's latest novel is Tulpas, now available in audio as well as print and eBooks.
2: Our guest today is Jude Kuravan, a PhD, cosmologist, futurist, planetary healer. She's a lot of things. I keep going on. Member of the (laughs) Evolutionary Leaders Circle and previously one of the most senior businesswomen in the UK. She has a master's degree in physics from Oxford and a doctorate in archaeology from the University of Reading. She's traveled extensively, worked with wisdom keepers from many traditions, and is a lifelong researcher into the nature of reality. She's the author of six books, including The Cosmic Hologram, and is co-founder of Whole World View. Her newest book is the story of Gaia, the big breath and the evolutionary journey of our conscious planet. Welcome Jude, we're glad yeah, welcome, you could make it. Welcome
3: Jude. <laughs> well, Rob, Trish, it's lovely to be with you and thanks to our maestro, John. It's good to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. So how, uh, Jude, how would you just start out, how would you summarize your book briefly? It's complex, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm sorry.
3: It, it, it is, but it's also a story. It literally uh-huh. is the story of our universe going right. back to uh, the first moment 13.8 billion years ago. Okay. And as I describe it, not in the <coughs> Big Bang, which we were, were taught. It wasn't big, and it wasn't a bang in the sense that it was instead of implying that it was chaotic, it was incredibly fine-tuned and exquisitely ordered to the extent that our universe embodied an evolutionary impulse from that very first moment, from simplicity to complexity and eventually to us. So I described that journey as as the big breath, you know, it was the first moment of an ongoing big breath as space expanded and times flowed ever since. And so instead of the old paradigm that we're taught of essentially a dead and meaningless and purposeless universe, what the evidence is now doing is turning that completely on its head. And so we're seeing that we are, you know, the microcosmic co-creators of an innately meaningful and purposeful universe that literally exists to evolve. So that's the whole story of Gaia, because Gaia is the name that the ancient Greeks gave to the earth goddess. So what I'm talking about now is the evidence of a living universe and therefore mm-hmm. a sentient planetary home. And, and that whole journey, which is quite extraordinary. Um, and I, I love to, to sort of hear your responses to it, because a lot of folks are saying that the book is reading them. It's almost as though Gaia's sitting down <laughs> and telling them her story, and yeah. the story of our entire <clears throat> universe, our important, vital role in its you know in its evolutionary impulse so that's I like
1: <laughs> i like those i like those introduction uh sections you have at the beginning of your chapters that uh, they seem to be gaia or the, the universe speaking uh in those uh-huh. parts and uh, you sometimes as well so it's 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 interesting uh well, what were you doing what was your intention with with those sections that you have in well, italics
3: yeah, I mean, as as you were saying earlier in Trisha's very kind introduction, I've written other books. I mean, The Story of Guy is a seventh. The Cosmic Hologram was a sixth. Yeah. So and I never meant to be an author. I never <laughs> set out to be an author. Um, it so happened that, you know, very kindly publishers were just told that I might be able to write before I'd written anything. <laughs> and and invited me to be an author for them. So um, uh-huh. it's been a wonderful journey. Um but that 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 idea of those intros to the chapters was my husband's idea, yeah. Because he felt that it would bring a deeper sense of experiential, uh-huh. you know, relationship. Yeah, it does, Gaia. right? Yeah, and and I loved it. So I really sort of asked Gaia, what should I do here? And I've been very fortunate to have a lot of uh, journeying in my life, you know, multidimensionally, walking between worlds as well as as amazing places.
2: Yeah, in uh-huh. some ways, it seems like you were channeling.
3: Gaia yeah, I, uh-huh. I, feel, I feel that that was the
1: case yeah, yeah. talk to us and about. I feel very
3: privileged and I feel incredibly honored and privileged because I really did do feel rob and Trish that the the book wrote me just as Reese is uh-huh. saying you know Gaia's you know sitting down and and sharing her story with us. Wow. I did feel the book wrote me in that sense
1: yeah, that's fascinating. uh talk about the the role of sound in the universe in the creation of the universe the promote primordial Aum as uh, being the sound and impulse of the Brahmanic breath of creation that sang our universe into being. And it's described in the Upanishads, the ancient Mm -hmm. Vedic uh, text, but also now you say has uh, scientific
3: connections. Absolutely. Uh, Well, what we know is when we do go back to that very first moment of the big breath, the first moment of space and time where our universe was born, or the appearance of our universe was born, because we now also appreciate that its appearance of energy and matter and space and time emerged from deeper non physical realms of causation. This is its all meaningful, all purposeful, all pervasive um, sort of appearance. And so if we go back to that very beginning, it was the hottest it's ever been, but it was not disordered because there were primordial magnetic fields that really ordered that incredible temperature that was trillions upon trillions of times hotter than the hottest stars. Nonetheless, it was part of the way in which the sort of the laws of physics were able to relate and set off our universe on this incredible evolutionary journey but because it was so hot atoms could not form but the, the basic you know the basic particularization of energy and matter was was still in its very 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 early process so the universe would not cool down enough as space expanded to be transparent to light and therefore the formation of atoms until about 380,000 years wow. along its journey but at the very beginning it was transparent to sound oh. and so we now know we can even know the sort of the it seems <clears throat> that there were three a sort of waves of three notes that pulsed through that very early epoch of the universe hmm. uh, and essentially began over that 380,000 years or so to shepherd the very earliest matter into what would become hundreds of millions of years later the first stars so this as, as Rob you said reflects the upanishads it reflects this sense of a, a, a primordial om that yeah. sang our universe into being and the other thing that i find fascinating is the best science we've got of the way that happened were effectively three mm-hmm. notes in other words three vibrationary levels of that sound and of course uh-huh. when we're taught how to to you know work with the om it's a-o-u-a-a-u-m om so it's not a single note, mm-hmm. and that's Makes exactly sense. what we're finding in that first epoch of our mm-hmm. universe.
2: What, what do you think, uh, Jude? Gaia's purpose was with COVID.
3: Uh, <laughs> thank you for this question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not—I I wouldn't presume to speak with Gaia on this one. Mm-hmm. But my own sense is that. First of all, when when in the book, I do write about viruses mm-hmm. because they are one of the oldest, if not the oldest, of of, of Gaia's biological children, of biological organisms. And they're essentially her simplest. They they've evolved, yeah. whereas most of her biosphere has evolved from simplicity to complexity, they've evolved to ever greater levels of simplicity. But nonetheless, in their simplicity is great intelligence Hmm. because we know now that viruses have language, that they can actually communicate with each other. And not only do they have language, they have dialects. So groups of viruses can communicate amongst themselves. And we know, and this is in the book, too, that there's research to suggest that they make a conscious choice as to whether to kill Wow, hosts, or enter some form of symbiotic relationship with them. And the whole story of Gaia's biological evolutionary journey is where viruses have been evolutionary change agents. And what we know is that the evolution of, of Gaia's biology, biosphere, has not been a linear progression. It's been a series of waves and then collapses, waves and collapses. But at every collapse point, it's been generally, I mean, there have been occasions when (laughs) it's, you know, it's been to an asteroid, for example, with with the dinosaurs, but where the dominant species have almost come to a a cul-de-sac ending in their evolutionary flow. And so Gaia and the whole Gaia sphere, has has essentially brought about a collapse. But when that collapse has happened, incredibly rapidly thereafter, the entirety of her innate intelligence has come together in radically different biological forms, body types, different um, types of organism that have then continued that evolutionary arc from simplicity to complexity. And what we're finding is that viruses, because they can mutate so quickly, are a significant part of this sort of what's what's sometimes called reticulous assembly. But it's basically this this bringing together a possibility, biological Ah. possibility for further evolution. So guess what? Here we are, you know, stopped in our tracks at a point where we have become unsustainable with regard to, to life on earth because of our, our misunderstanding of what reality is all about and our buying into illusion of separation that a virus comes along and literally stops us in our tracks uh-huh. and it uh-huh. seems to me with all its challenges to offer us an opportunity to reconsider who we think we are to literally re- remember who we really are to literally wake up and remember, we're inseparable, and this is what I write about. But this is what the evidence is showing, and it seems to me that the virus COVID offers an opportunity to hmm. actually, you know, realize, recognize, uh-huh. appreciate that, and where we go from here. This is our collective moment of choice, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. I
2: have did Did you learn all this at Oxford? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just amazed. I mean, you.
3: I mean, did they talk about this in physics? No. No, Okay. Well, first of all, I'm 70 years old. So (laughs) I was at Oxford half a century ago. And all of this is like the leading edge, the best scientific breakthroughs now. No, I mean, I had my first experience of what I'd call uh, multidimensional realms and this deeper unified nature of reality beginning when I was four years old. Wow. <laughs> and so I was I was having a great time walking between worlds all the way up to going to Oxford. When yeah, I was give on, us
2: an example of what you mean. Okay, what what happened when you were four?
3: Well, the the first remembrance I have is that a discarnate light came into my bedroom and I started to hear clairaudiently. it wasn't through my ears, it was uh-huh. hearing a voice, and that just became an ongoing, an on, huh. ongoing journey. Um of clairaudience, clairvoyance, um, telepathy, remote viewing, Mm. but also intuition, you know, because we we look at these supernormal, you know, attributes which are natural to us. But our greatest superpower in that regard is our intuition. Mm -hmm. So I've learned over many, many years to hear and listen and honour my intuition and and follow its guidance and what a journey it's been. But when I went to Oxford... Um, I was also fascinated when I was a kid with astronomy and I was fascinated with quantum physics when I was a mm-hmm. kid. <laughs> I yeah. should have got out more. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so I, I ended up getting a scholarship to Oxford when I was 18.. Wow. And. Yeah. And, um, I think, and um, studying physics and and in the time I was there, um, I specialized in quantum physics and cosmology. But no, I wasn't taught any of this. I mean, what <laughs> okay. I've been sharing with this is, is very, very recent. And so, but it gave me the scientific language. So uh-huh. it gave me a discipline. It gave me a methodology. It gave me a language that I was able to, alongside all the other threads in my life and the scenic route I've travelled, uh-huh. <laughs> to continue to be absolutely fascinated and therefore to stay abreast of leading edge science over the last half century.
2: When you it's, go to a place, hold on. Rob. <laughs> okay. As she's talking, I keep thinking of things. Um, when you go to a place like Stonehenge, do you yeah. hear the Clareaudiently voices about the place?
3: I do, but also when I when I I studied, I researched my PhD in, mm-hmm. uh, in archaeology, in anthropological archaeology, and my thesis was called "Walking Between Worlds." Oh, okay. But, <laughs> but it was very much the story of um, the hunter-gatherers <clears throat> of the Mesolithic moving to be the Neolithic herders, pastoralist farmers, mm. the Neolithic, and what that meant for them perhaps in terms of their cosmology, because a cosmology is, is how we make sense of ourselves in the world. Mm. You know, it, it's, it's how do we describe reality? And so if you're a hunter-gatherer, always on the move, perhaps mainly in forests, yeah, along rivers and waterways, Um, you have a different relationship with your surroundings than if you settled. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you're doing some herding and some summer pastures and growing crops. So, And and we see that in that transition, our ancestors began to create monuments in the landscape for the first time. Before that, you know, they'd honoured the web of life, it seems. Uh, They'd honoured the natural places of power. Yeah. But when they moved to the Neolithic, they started to create stone circles, henges, um, all sorts of monuments, uh-huh. and I think that was that was reflective of their their changing view of of the world around them and themselves and cosmology. So when I did my archaeological PhD, it was I was really interested in those ancient ways of of making sense. Of, of mm-hmm. the nature of reality and how that correlated with the transition we're going through now. Because what we're going through now, as we literally with this leading edge science, the old paradigm of materialism and separation, as I right. said, has been turned completely on its head. I mean, in a sense, I think mean, what we're going through now, will be going through in these coming years, is even more significant than the changes that they went through in their own perceptions. So yes, I did. Huh. And yes, when you do a PhD you have to then get the evidence that validates it.
1: <laughs> so so Jude is the is the academic world getting any closer to accepting the concept of the universe as a conscious entity and guidance? I would
3: say I would say it is. I mean, you may you may not have heard but in 2022, well first of all let's get take a step back to the beginning of the quantum era. The quantum pioneers were realizing that the old mechanistic view of the universe had its place, but it needs to be expanded into a deeper realization of a much more relational interdependent universe. Mm -hmm. And for quantum physics to work at all, it was realized theoretically at that point that our universe in its entirety (coughs) had to exist and evolve as a what's called a non-locally unified whole. In other words, within space-time, the speed of light is the, is the cosmic speed cop. No signal, no information can go faster than the speed of light within space-time. But what was confusing was this quantum realisation that the entire universe had to know itself simultaneously it had to be non-locally unified huh. so there was this big debate about either or because relativity was saying cosmic speed limit within space-time right. quantum physics was saying non-locally unified einstein called it spooky action at a distance right. he didn't like it because he thought it was an yeah. either or what we now realize it's a both and huh So both within space-time and the appearance of our universe, of energy matter space-time, yes, there is a limit to the speed of signal, which is why we can have this conversation, Mm
2: -hmm. which is
3: why we can say go back 13.8 billion years to the (laughs) beginning of what became a unidirectional flow of time within our universe. And our universe is non-locally unified, which means that the sort of supernormal phenomena that we were just touching on, is a natural attribute of a unified universe. Now, Rob, your question was, is science coming around? (laughs) And and the answer is yes, because in 2022, the Nobel Prize for Physics was given to three uh, researchers, John Clauser, Anton Anton Zellinger and Alan Aspect, who've been studying the non-locality of our universe at, at, at large scales, for decades now, the mm-hmm. point of this is quite important because Einstein ne- didn't get his Nobel Prize for relativity because mm. it wasn't seen to be settled science. Mm-hmm. So he got it for the photoelectric effect, right. which showed that light is quantized. Okay, these guys got the Nobel in 2022 because this universal non-locality is now deemed to be settled science. Wow. Mm.
2: I've never heard this explained so well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, you know, you read books on quantum physics, and it's it's like another language. But you just explained it beautifully.
1: Yeah. Thank you. So one I'm, one of the uh, issues I have uh, reading your book is uh, just personally is the uh, the concept of space time. I mean, how are minutes and years calculated uh, in the creation of the universe? I mean, there's no there's no. Uh, Way of uh, judging time, I would think, and and what and and to that extent, what about the idea that there is actually no linear time that everything unfolds simultaneously?
3: Well, that's not right. Um, I mean, it was something <laughs> that's, that's about sixty years out of date now. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you huh. need to catch up with the eight ball on this. No, it was <laughs> block, it was called the block universe, and it was put in place because there wasn't this understanding that we now have of this flow of time. It was actually put in place before even, I think, the Big Bang got coined.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So it goes back a long, long way, and it really is outdated science. It's like, you know, the epicycles of a, of a, of, a, of an Earth-centric solar system. It's, you know, <laughs> part of that. We've been there, done that, uh-huh. bought the T-shirt, moved on. Um, so, so, no, it, it's not that, and that's not what we're measuring. The other thing to note is that time, we have a personal sense of time. Yeah? Right. yeah, Einstein said this. You know, Einstein said so many people said it. You know, I can I can be doing something and I can get literally lost, and and it's two hours. And I thought, oh, it's ten minutes.
1: Right. Yeah?
3: Or I can be waiting in a in a dentist waiting room, and and ten minutes seems like two hours. Right. Um, <laughs> it works both ways. But as a cosmologist, we literally could not be here unless there was a universal objective time frame that hmm. goes back to that first moment of the big bang 13.8 billion years ago and has flowed one way ever since and the way, reason it flows one way and brian green the cosmologist brian green wrote a great book about this is because our universe began in its in its most ordered state its simplest state had it not done that time could have gone either way and quantum physics allows for time to go either way huh. Relativity doesn't. Because what Einstein's genius identified was although space is relative to an observer, time is relative to an observer, he went one step further that's often missed. They need to be considered together as space dash time. And then the whole universe hangs together because that space dash time, space time is invariant. So in other words, an observation that takes place here on Earth now of a galaxy a hundred million light years away would recognize an event happening in that galaxy in the same dimensions of space time as another observer in another galaxy would also identify that event and this is key because if that wasn't the case if space time wasn't invariant our universe just would not hang together it would literally mean that the laws of physics were not universal and everything we know about science is that they are but Rob this is important because what we also now realize is that this direction of, of universal time which will be measured whether here on Earth in minutes and hours and days, doesn't matter. The measures do not matter because what we're realizing now at the fundamental scale of our universe or its appearance is something called the Planck scale. And the Planck scale emerges from the relationship of the laws of physics and it relates to energy, matter, space, <clears throat> time. And temperature. There are five what's called Planck scales. Mm-hmm. But the point is that when you look at the laws of physics and pull them together, there are four constants, one of which is the speed of light, another is what's called the gravitational constant, and two others relate to, to the quantum world, which is Planck's constant itself, and the other relates to thermodynamics, which is called Boltzmann's constant. Now that's very nerdy, but it's very important. <laughs> because when we put the laws of physics together those constants can be shared of any measurement that we apply to them and that means that the Planck scale constant uh, the Planck scale measures in terms of energy matter space time temperature are independent of whatever measures we call them so for example the Planck scale of length, which is where the reality, the finite reality of our universe, its appearance, comes into being, is minute. It's as tiny as a, to an atom, as an atom is to the whole universe. Huh. It's what's called 10 to the minus 35 metres. But it could be anything we want to call it. And if we were having this conversation... On another planet in another galaxy, we could say it's XXXYYY Gobbledygook. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's the same length oh. in space. And the and the Planck scale of time, which is what's been unfolding ever since that first moment of the big breath, is even tinier. Wait for this. It's 10 to the minus 44 seconds. My God. <laughs> the whole experience and existence and evolution of our universe has gone from that most minute beginning, 13.8 billion years ago, with that big breath of space expanding and time flowing ever since. And every plant scale moment adds more information embodied experience evolving within our universe. And Rob... This is really important because I know that there's a lot of folks who say, well, time is illusory. It really isn't. As a cosmo- as a cosmologist, if it wasn't as real as us sitting here, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, Absol- I, I,
1: there, <clears throat> I guess, you know, the, I, there's two senses of time, linear time, and that deeper sense of time, that exists outside of time. I of mean course. when uh when when people travel in uh space if they're doing that they could come back and they would be younger than uh when they left or uh younger than every everybody they knew
3: isn't that well the, that's a the, flaw that's another nope. flaw <laughs> okay. in, in, wow. that's I get all the another flaw <laughs> in the understanding of relativity <laughs> okay that's another flaw Ex- because Ex- explain the, the most, well because the most fundamental I mean it in theory that could potentially happen the issue is causality okay hmm. the one fundamental attribute of the flow of time within our universe is that causality cannot be violated hmm. yeah okay. so this idea of somebody coming back younger and therefore affecting any historical causality would be it's like it's its past not go you know you cannot do that So we're still yet to experimentally go through any possibility and the jury is still open as to how that might happen without causality being an issue. Because, you know, what this model is showing us is that the supernormal attributes that I've just talked about, such as telepathy or precognition, Mm -hmm. um, don't violate causality. That's the key. Uh Uh-huh. If we understand that, then we understand the rest. And as you quite rightly say, we also have the attributes to to attune with and communicate with multidimensional realms that are not part of the universal space time.
4: Okay. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Let me let me let me let me jump on Rob's uh, bandwagon here. Okay. So I, I think I think maybe this is the maybe this is an obvious question. So. So, 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 time travel is impossible.
3: I was just going to ask that.
1: <laughs>
3: yeah, I would say time travel. If it time travel, if it violates causality within our universe, is impossible.
2: Huh. Okay.
3: Yep. And I'll lay. I'd, I'm not a betting woman, but I'd I'd lay a lot of money on that one. So
2: uh, suppose you have a precognition, yes. where you you know you sense the future. Can you change as a result? of that precognition, can you change an event?
3: I think there's two aspects of this, Trish. There's there's presentiment and there's precognition. Uh-huh. And I think what we're finding is, although the past is the past, you know, there is this arrow of time from the beginning of our universe. We are at the bow wave now, at the here and now of our universe. But research is showing, and the reason I describe it as a bow wave, is it doesn't seem to be a sort of a, a moment cutoff. It Mm. it seems as though from the experimentation and research we're doing that there's a sort of potentializing of the possibilities that then become the here and the now. So when we have a presentiment or a precognition, we're tapping into those potentialities. So the question then is, can we, with that realization, because, of course, they've not come into the here and now, so not violating causality. Huh. Are, we a- are we able to, to change? I've had both. I've had presentiments where I've not been able to change what's then come. Uh-huh. Precognitions where I had a sense that I can. But the question of this bow wave is the way I describe it is you know, when you see a, a ship or a boat going across a, a lake or a, or mm-hmm. the sea, there is a bow wave at the front. There's all that churning water. Mm-hmm. That's the way I'm describing. The, the, the sort of the, the future becoming the present but we don't know how far forward potentially that bow wave extends. I mean the work that Dean Radin has done at ions right suggested yeah. you know very short time and yet we have other um we have other um prophecies that suggest the potential of that bow wave can be longer but perhaps very very nuanced. Because the further out the prophecies go, the more, you know, they're Rorschach tests rather than, you know, very specific. But nonetheless, the research that's being done and the experimental work that's being done, and you'd expect it from quantum physics, actually, that there would be that potential superposition, a potentiality, a possibility. Not to change the laws of physics at all, Uh. to recognise that we're talking about an in formational universe wow those possibilities you know what is our collective moment of choice for example
2: mm-hmm. well i asked because we had one guest on who's a dreamer right. and when he first started doing his dreaming he was living in amsterdam and dreamed that very specifically how he how he died he was assaulted by two men and you know woke up and thought he was dead you know And he even in the dream saw himself leaving his body and going to his girlfriend's apartment in New York. And he was in Amsterdam. Two weeks later, he got ready to leave for the U.S. and the same thing unfolded. And this time he saved his own life. Right. So where where would that fit? I
3: I mean, I think these are really important, you know, accounts. I think the the, the difficulty is that the validation of them. Uh Uh-huh. And yeah, you know, I'm absolutely open to all of this. Um, but one of the things I think is helpful in in researching, first of all, I think the scientific method that we have is too limited. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I, 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 you know, from my own experiences as well, I know there are many ways of knowing. I guess the point here, and and this is where things called meta-analyses are so helpful, is when you get a lot of these accounts.
2: Mm-hmm
3: as case studies, then they begin to show patterns. Right. And it's the patterns that I think can help us. Because for me, naturalizing these ways of knowing, naturalizing communications with with, with multidimensional sentience and intelligences is, uh-huh. is a fundamental aspect of our conscious evolution. Hmm. So I, I love, you know, I, I really appreciate, and I really appreciate it when people are willing to share these accounts. And the more they come together, the more patterning we can see in them, and therefore the 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 better grounding we have.
2: What's strange is that ma- mainstream science still is questioning the existence of of psychic ability, like what you're talking about, telepathy, you know, precognition, well, you know.
3: You know, when at the beginning of the quantum revolution and relativity revolution, um, you know, people decried that, as I say, Einstein did not get his Nobel (laughs) for relativity because it wasn't settled science. And even now, it's taken 100 years for the Nobel in 2022, more than 100 years, to be given to researchers that Uh are really revealing or helping to reveal universal non-locality. So, What I'm writing about in the Cosmic Hologram and and, and the story of Gaia aren't just my ideas. As you've read, they bring together the research of of tens of thousands of researchers, Mm -hmm. you know, across all scales of existence and numerous fields of research showing the same thing. Showing that the appearance of our universe, its energy, matter, space, time, isn't its fundamental reality that it's mm-hmm. it, it is reality but it arises its appearance arises from deeper levels of non-physical and intelligent causation as meaningful information so and holographically uh uh-huh. manifest so we're putting all the pieces now evidentially together that enables this 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 new unitive understanding the unified nature of reality that that's convergence it converges with universal wisdom teachings with spiritual <clears throat> teachings with indigenous teachings right and so well, you know science is science good science always goes always follows the evidence wherever it leads
2: uh-huh.
3: and i think more and more scientists are acknowledging this and coming to this party and, <laughs> and um i think this next couple of years next few years is going to be
1: an absolute
4: sea change. Wow. Yeah. I have a question. And, 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 and we'll, Go ahead hey, real quick just off that cuz yeah. cuz I think that's something that uh I think that's something that gets conflated a lot these days is uh, people <laughs> see technology people people see technology uh evolving quickly and then you hear people and then you hear phrases like the speed of science. In actuality, science is very methodical, very process oriented. Science is actually a process. <laughs> it's not. It, it, so, so 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 you know. So the 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 yes, there's science behind this. The the technologies we use, but the evolution of that technology is building on top of uh, on top of uh, science that's that's actually fairly old.
3: Well, yes and no. Um, I agree with you. The technology has, I mean, again, going back to the beginning of the quantum relativity eras, the things that were being discovered were very, very unsettling to the majority of the researchers. And some of them, such as Max Planck, Schrodinger, Einstein and others, you know, were, were open to what the evidence was showing them. And some of them did go to the Upanishads, did go to the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and many others mm-hmm. and realize that what they were discovering, you know, had been written about thousands of years right. before. But because of that was so unsettling, because it was bringing consciousness, the nature of consciousness it, as the as the elephant in the room. And, and that was too unsettling for most of the researchers. So that got pushed to the side for nearly more than a century, really. Mm-hmm. And so, Rob, as you say, it was technology that the focus was then on what can this new science tell us technologically. And that's been the speed that's come to this point. and And, you know, incredible ways. But the deeper questions and the deeper realisations are only now being brought Front and center, because the evidence is not allowing them to be peripheralized anymore. Huh. Because what the evidence is showing us now is that mind and consciousness aren't something we have; they're literally what we and the whole world are. Huh. And this, of course, was the the, <clears throat> the viewpoints and Planck and Schrödinger and others. So, but we now have the evidence to support this. So this is meaning that we, you know, we can't go on in that old. Well, we can, but you know, the old paradigm and materialism and separation is literally being turned upside down because the evidence is showing us that it is no longer the deeper perception of the nature of reality.
2: Well, you know, somebody like um, physicist David Bohm, for instance. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, where he says it's all, you know, everything, even space, time arises from this inner order. That, that's basically what you're talking about with the universe, yeah, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly. Okay.
3: And David was talking about this. I I I must. I heard this the other day, and I need to go back and check. But I was told that the first time he still came forward with this was in 1952.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, if that's right, that was the year of my birth. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh-oh. And, of course, <laughs> and, of course, he talked about the uh, implicate order giving rise right. So, the Uh expert, but he also talked about active information. And Uh at the time, there wasn't sufficient understanding of the nature of information, meaningful information. There wasn't any understanding of what's called the holographic principle. Mm -hmm. There was any understanding, which is a lot of my work, about expanding the laws of thermodynamics to the laws of infodynamics. Mm -hmm. There was none of that. And there wasn't hardly any of the evidence that I've included in the Cosmic Hologram and the story of Gaia, because most of this evidence is in the last decade. Huh. So he was an extraordinary pioneer.
2: Yeah, he really was. Now
3: is, is, is really coming forward and being you know validated. Um, in and everything. I think,
2: I mean, we used his his theory about the implicate and the expl- eh, explicate to Try to explain what synchronicity is, yeah. you know, because be, and and it, it fits, you know,
3: and this is this is what I write about, which is why uh-huh. I write, about, you know, what I'm writing about the cosmic hologram as right. as I the same, Earth, yeah. uh, is is exactly that that synchronicities, uh mm-hmm. attributes and phenomena, intuition are all part of a living, conscious, unified, right. multi dimensional evolutionary universe where mind and consciousness literally are what we in the whole world are. And none of that violates causality within uh-huh. space-time. Yeah, it's so enables it enables anyway. the whole life cycle to unfold and yet still the ability to engage with and communicate with these other dimensions of sentience. Whereas Rob said earlier, you know, do not have the linearity of the time within our universe.
1: Right. So if we we live in the explicate uh, and the everything is derived from the implicate order, does that mean that before there was the universe, the implicate order existed?
3: Well, I don't tend to. It's a great question, Rob, and I don't tend to use Bohm's implicate/explicate uh-huh. because I feel they're a little bit superseded. And the reason for that is they, they still sort of, he never understood how the implicate could become the explicate. Right. And what I've been able to do now in these two books, but also with thanks to all the evidence of so many researchers, as well as my own work, is showing how our universe is created. And it does so in a sense, because when we go <clears throat> beyond our universe, to what Einstein called cosmic mind, what spiritual traditions might call uh, God or Allah or great spirit or great mystery, um, we realise that that infinite and eternal cosmic mind has thoughts.
2: Uh
3: And we might like to call our universe a great thought, which Sir James Jeans, the great Edwardian uh, philosopher, did. A great thought. A finite great thought of an infinite internal cosmos. And Uh of course, in in this understanding, God, great spirit, the creator is not out there. The creator and the creation is all one. Uh It's an experiential differentiation of a great Uh thought and where we are microcosmic co-creators, evolutionary co-partners. If we, you know, respond to the invitation, it seems to me of our universe in this great unfolding story. Well,
2: I I would think too that your concept of life after death is very is conscious.
3: Yes, of course. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
2: that's pretty cool. Absolutely,
3: absolutely. So you know, experiences such such as near death experiences, afterlife, life Mm. continuation, uh, afterlife. Communication, multidimensional uh, communications, engagement, archetypal intelligences are all part of this expanded grandeur hmm. of a multidimensional, living, evolutionary, unified, meaningful, purposeful yeah. <laughs> universe. Wow. Nice. Another question
1: uh, at the creation of the universe, uh, the breath, great breath, there was no matter. So where did where did matter come from? How does why is there <laughs> matter at all?
3: Well, first of all, we need to understand that energy and matter are incredibly ephemeral. When we dig down into quantum scales or lower, you know, they're not the atoms and protons and neutrons and electrons, aren't the little building ball billiard balls that we might have been taught at school.
2: Mm.
3: We go down to a 9.999999999% <laughs> no thinness, where what there is is relational fields of information. Mm -hmm. So the appearance of energy matter, the appearance of space-time, arises from these deeper non-physical realms of causation as meaningful in formation. In other words, the stuff of our, the appearance of our universe is meaningful in dash formation, expressed as what we call energy matter and in a complementary way as space-time. And just to put the cherry or the ice <laughs> on the top of the ice cream sundae, that our entire universe is essentially a holographic projection from the boundary of what we call space-time, which is why as space expands and as time flows forward, our universe can embody ever more meaningful energy evil meaningful information and purposeful evolutionary experience Uh so it all hangs together on that basis but we have to then go beyond the 20th century perspectives Mm -hmm. of the appearance to the deeper fundamental realities and this is what Bohm was talking about he just Uh didn't know at that point how it happened right how it hung together and we now our understanding to a greater degree, although it's it's still a work in progress, it's always a work (laughs) in progress, um, how that that occurs. And the other thing to say is that Roger Penrose, Mm -hmm. who I first met when I was at Oxford all those years ago, won the Nobel Prize in Physics a couple of years ago because of his work essentially on the holographic principle. So again, this is becoming settled science.
2: Well, you know, Michael Talbot was ahead of a lot of people when he wrote the holographic universe. I think that he came sure out in 1992, and he wasn't I even mean. a
3: scientist; you know? he was a journalist. Yeah, I mean, bless that man. But I, I, I suspect I'd have loved if he'd have been with us still because I, I know be me too. So excited, yeah. so excited. But clearly, he had a very powerful both. Um, you Know intellectual grasp, uh-huh. but also I suspect intuitive grasp, right? Grasp. I think exactly. so too.
2: Yes, yeah, definitely.
1: And he writes a lot, he wrote a lot about his own experiences and uh, in this book, uh, just you know, some amazing experiences. Yeah, yeah. I've, yeah. I love that book.
2: Now, yeah. I'm gonna have to okay, now, how in, in your cosmic hologram book, tell mm. me what how does that differ from what I mean? Obviously, it's a lot. Farther <laughs> ahead of where Talbot was in nineteen ninety two, but do you, do you, is it the same type of principles?
3: What it, you've been talking it's, about? Here? It's much further along. I mean, nineteen ninety two to twenty seventeen. Right. What I've been able to do as a cosmologist, because of course Michael was brilliant, but he was a journalist. He wasn't uh-huh. a cosmologist or a physicist. What I've been able to do is really bring all the science together in a model. Huh. as I mentioned earlier, by expanding the three laws of thermodynamics to three laws of infodynamics, uh-huh. mm-hmm. I've been able to sort of show how information expresses itself as, as conserved, quantized energy matter. Mm-hmm. Secondly, how information expresses itself as what I call entropic space-time. Mm-hmm. The first allows the universe to exist, the second to evolve. And the third law, is is showing how this this temperature uh, and an information relationship plays out through the whole life cycle of our universe wow. so by bringing all that together and with the holographic principle and all the evidence i've been able i hope to lay out uh, a sharing of where you know we can now i hope literally turn that old paradigm of separation and separation right. on its head <clears throat> Oh, would okay. you say
1: that it's would you say talk. that the would you say that the entire universe exists within each one of us then
3: well in the sense it's holographic we are a pixel right uh-huh. yeah
1: yeah. Right. yeah
3: and just as we are 37 trillion cell community each of our bodies is a 37 right. trillion cell community you know the point about holograms is the whole is when every Tiny pixel. Exactly. Every right. pixel, and it's the old hermetic tradition of as above, so below; as within, so without. So you know, as a unified universe, we are inseparable from its wholeness, and we're part of of what you know. I think David Bohm talked about its holarchy, uh-huh. scaling up and scaling down, and multi level communities of relationship. You know, it, when the when the when the indigenous wisdom tells us or invites us to connect with all our relations, literally the whole universe and every aspect of its existence are our relations. We are part of a universal family of consciousness of life.
2: You teach? <laughs> I mean, I, I would love to take a class from you. My God, I've never heard this stuff explained so well.
3: Thank you. Uh, funnily enough, I, I have been just invited by humanities team. So I'm doing a, I'm, I'm co uh, teaching a, a 16 module course with Andrew Harvey. Uh, coming oh, up. Oh. And I'm also doing one called Our Conscious Revolution, oh. our transformational journey <laughs> to whole being and belonging. Because this wow. has shown us we belong, you know? Right, right. We belong. Yeah. I would like
1: to. I would like to hear a conversation with you and Andrew Harvey. That would be. Oh, well, I know that'd be fascinating. <laughs> oh,
3: it's already out there. We had a fantastic <laughs> session with Steve Carroll and yeah. the folks at Humanities Team. It was just, right. it was just fabulous, yeah. and it's a free program. So if you uh-huh. go to Humanities Team, that that one hour, and Andrew's uh, wonderful. So yeah, mm-hmm. good. Where,
2: where can we find that?
3: Um, I think just uh, go to Humanities Team okay as a website and then um just you know google for for andrew and myself okay yeah wow
1: so jude is (laughs) the is the universe continuing to evolve and what does that mean
3: yes it does because it's been on this journey for the last 13.8 billion years i mean the hydrogen in our bodies and the waters of our planetary home gaia the hydrogen is as old as the universe. It's a few moments less than the age of the universe. So, you know, our story is the story of our universe and vice versa. So it's been evolving from simplicity to complexity and ever greater levels of individuated self-awareness and collective interdependence ever since. So, yes, and it seems to me that, as I mentioned earlier, we're on the bow wave of its here and now And it's continuing evolutionary impulse because it embodies this impulse to evolve. So for me, this isn't so much about our biological evolution. It's our conscious Uh evolution. Mm -hmm. It's waking up to all that we've shared today. It's waking up to this grander, most wonderful adventure that it seems to me we're being invited to literally wake up, as Ken Wilber said, and grow up and (laughs) clean up because of the trauma of separation, and show up and link up and lift up and level up and light up. Mm -hmm. And what an amazing invitation to become co-evolutionary partners, conscious co-evolutionary partners with our beloved planetary home, Gaia, and our entire universe.
1: Wow. So... So what about glo- what about global warming where do you stand on that and wh- wh- what's our future
3: Well what I would say is that you know uh, the old paradigm of materialism separation mm-hmm. it seems to me we've had a dis-ease a separation mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: and that has you know separated ourselves from each other from uh, from our planetary home and the entire universe mm-hmm. and the point is uh, uh, a worldview of separation In that worldview, um, injustices, inequalities, exploitation, conflicts, and natural behaviours, when we turn that completely upside down to remember, we are literally inseparable from the whole world,
2: Hmm. then
3: it seems to me that different behaviours emerge from that. Behaviours of relationship, behaviours of justice and peace, and harmony, and ultimately belonging. So we're in a process, yes, of climate change. And to what degree, and I, my research suggests a very great degree, is our, is our misunderstood treatment, our exploitation,
2: mm.
3: our destruction of environments, our mm. utter disruption of Gaia's incredibly intelligent way of balancing <coughs> the entire Gaia sphere, we have disrupted on a huge scale and and Uh. exploit and destroy. The point is, the sooner we wake up, the sooner we can hopefully help to alleviate the worst of this. I don't know whether we, I don't think personally, we can stop some of it and it may be very, very challenging. Mm -hmm. What I do feel is if we don't wake up, we're going to go extinct mm. uh-huh.
2: yeah.
3: and we're going to take a lot, as we already are, a huge amount of Gaia's 4 billion own planetary story of evolution mm. with us. And mm. for me, that is unconscionable. Oh, I just, yeah. you know, the very thought of that. So anything that I can do, and I don't want to be pointing fingers and I don't want to be playing a blame game at all, when we're not aware, we're not aware. But the more of us that are becoming aware of this, the more we can share this new story, this unitive narrative of wholeness. Mm-hmm. And unity isn't uniformity, it's radical diversity. <laughs> it's empowering. It's To me, it's empowering and inspiring. And it offers us authentic hope.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And our young people, authentic hope. And our children's children's children hope so why wouldn't we do all that we can to serve and and to to, to share and to support a collective choice a personal and collective choices
1: it you seems know. that the younger people are the more they're aware <clears throat> of climate change and the, what's going to ha- could happen in the future as the older people there's less interest i guess or less knowledge or less willing to less awareness less awareness awareness. it's
3: all awareness yeah it's all awareness rob and to be honest i think anything that you guys can do anything that you know i'm doing what i can do to share the message that that old paradigm of materialism separation is bullshit yeah
2: right it's
3: bs (laughs) it's outworn any possibility of benefit it really has
2: you need to lecture to politicians.
3: <laughs> you, don't, you don't think I am? I don't want to lecture <laughs> anybody.
2: No, I know. I'm just saying you, yeah. you need to talk to politicians like this. Okay, guys.
3: Here, and I am. See. And yeah, I okay, am. So. And I'm talking to CEOs and I'm talking oh, to good. transformational leaderships. And I'm talking to educators. And mm. I'm, yeah. I'm to, basically, my mom used to say, I'll talk to anybody. And yeah. <laughs> I am and I will. Yeah. <laughs> So,
1: Jude, we're coming to the end of our hour, but I I have one question. I should have asked this earlier, uh, but uh, this seems to me almost a a mystical thing with uh, solar eclipses in that, so the moon apparently was created when a large object, a planet or whatever, crashed into Earth, broke off and formed the moon. Now, when we have a solar eclipse, the amazing thing is the moon perfectly perfectly fits over the sun? I mean, the the we're our distance to the moon, the moon's distance from the Earth or from the sun. It just that is amazing. Can you can you explain that?
3: <laughs> it is wonderful. It is truly a cosmic amazement, and it's four hundred. You know, four hundred times the size. Four hundred right. times. Right. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, I'm I'm a both and person in the sense that um, I'm open. I mean, I've been a mystic as well as a scientist all my life. A lot of the information that I've received, I've received through other ways of knowing Uh science. And it seems to me that every time, and I've experienced, I think, four um, total solar eclipses, and they are transformational. They are extraordinary. So in whatever way that this cosmic magic has arisen, you know, I thank, I thank the universe mm. for it. And I, I'm sure that you know we have so much still, we're at the beginning. Yeah. Mm. We're at the beginning of of being sort of, you know, we're beginning to sort of grow up, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. As, as as a universal species. I hope, I hope, I hope, I trust. Yeah. What mysteries, what adventures, what wonderful stories are still open to us. Hmm. And that's the right. point. I mean, I I like you. I just look at that and go, wow. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: yeah, um, right. And and I'm very open to mystical bases for that. <laughs> right.
1: and, and we wow. didn't even get into the question of other life in the universe. And yeah, I was going to
2: ask ask <laughs> you if you thought that that What happened on Mars? If there was there ever life on Mars, and what we're it they looks scroll? as though there
3: was. It looks yeah. more so there was, and we've got flybys of Jupiter's moons uh-huh. coming up, um, probably at the end of the decade, and also, you know, we've got a number of moons like Europa, probably possibly Ganymede, right. um, possibly Titan, you know, uh, that are able because because of the tidal forces within them, because of their proximity to Jupiter and Saturn, Uh it could be warm enough for liquid water um, under their ice crusts. And we've Mm -hmm. seen some early evidence for that. Um, As I write about in the story of Gaia, you know, it looks as though certainly Mars and possibly Venus too, Uh as well as Gaia, were water planets to begin with. Mars is a bit too far away from the sun and too small. Mm -hmm. to have been able to possibly go beyond early stages of a biosphere. Venus um, went went greenhouse and very, very hot, and therefore anything would have evaporated. But what we do know is that in the interstellar dust clouds and clouds of dust and gas that are forerunners for planetary systems, there's vast amounts of ice you know, the analysis of water on, on our planetary home shows that possibly 50% or more of it is older than our solar system. Wow. Mm, we wow. also know that there are thousands of what are called exoplanets out in our galaxy. There's now a, a, a view that there are more planets in our galaxy than are stars. Hmm. And that's probably pretty much the same throughout the universe. Now, Gaia is very special. We could have a whole program just on this, <laughs> but 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 biological life. The universe is evolved to create biological life as part of its journey of evolutionary complexity. The harbingers of biological life were already the organic molecules, the prebiotic molecules. We found all of those building blocks in gas and dust clouds in our galaxy. Yeah. The more we look, the more we find.
1: Yeah. It's fascinating. My,
2: my dog is sitting here listening to you. He, he even sat (laughs) down. It's like, he's got this rapture expression on his face. He wants (laughs) to go
1: to the dog park. He says, I
2: know your hour is up.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you oh, very thank much, Jude. Oh, this, Jude has this, has been, this has been fascinating.
2: It's been great. I'd love to have you back on. I, let me read your cosmic holograph first. And we want to <laughs> please, have you back on. Please
3: do. And we could do a whole a whole session just on Gaia's journey because the uh-huh. story of her planetary journey is extraordinary in itself. But whatever you'd like, I'd be delighted to do okay, that, Okay, well, thanks That's so great. much. This thank
2: has just you. Been, and, John, when does the link for this go up?
4: Uh, well, it should be today. Okay, and, so uh, I'll and, send you the link. And, and you, where, where can people find you if they want to find yes. out more?
3: Um, John, thank you. www.wholeworld-view.org is the best place. Um, the books are, you know, all over. Um, but wholeworld-view.org is probably the best place to find okay. not only what I'm about, but what I co-founded six years ago and what we've okay. been doing ever since. so thank you all and we'll share share the link through inner traditions and we'll share it through our own whole worldview okay
2: great
0: thanks for joining the mystical underground visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical.
4: And just real quick, this might be a tag on the end of the episode because, uh, I've I've had a uh, I've had a debate that went on with a good friend of mine for over twenty years about whether time travel is possible or not, and uh, and so Daniel Henson, I'm sending you the link to this podcast, <laughs> and, and 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 so Jude, I'm on your side. <laughs> so, so, John, so thank and the only you. thing the only thing Daniel Henson has going for him is that uh, he watched uh, Back to the Future one time. Well, <laughs>
3: so, 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 you know, if you, can, if you can land yourself a DeLorean.
4: Yeah. All right. I appreciate it. Have a good day. Thanks so much. Thanks
3: so much. Lots of love. Bye for (laughs) now.